Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Today is the day you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Today is the day you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And I won't worry about tomorrow. I'm trusting in what you say. Today is the day. Today is the day. Good morning. Today is the day. It is Monday, the 26th of August, 2019. I have a series of headlines that seem utterly disconnected, but worth mentioning. Um, Andrew Luck retired. He's 29 years old. I, I really, I, stunning, right? Like, imagine a culture where at 29, you could have already been not only so successful in your chosen career, but so successful that, eh, you could be done with it in order to move on to other things. And so um, here, I'll frame it this way it's for our conversations for the day. Uh, Andrew Luck may have spent, uh, you know, the last decade or so living up to his last name. I'll throw that out there for you. Let us uh, let us now hope and pray that he spends the rest of his life living up to his first name. How's that sound? So Andrew, uh, as you will recall, is the brother of Simon Peter. Andrew is the one who goes and like finds Peter and he's like, I, we've, we found the Lord. Like, right? <laughs> that'd be cool. Right. So uh, he's certainly going to have the financial freedom to do whatever he might choose to do in the remainder of what uh, we certainly all hope is a very long life. Having finished his career in the NFL as an Indianapolis Colt. So um, I saw much rejoicing yesterday from fans of other teams <laughs> wishing Andrew luck well in his, uh, Retirement, which will be very long. Okay, Uh, it's not only the National Dog Day, it's International Dog Day. And so uh, I will be spending at least part of my day taking pictures of uh, Sassy, who is, you would call her a mutt. We call her a canardly because you can hardly tell uh, what her parentage is. So Sassy is my dog. She's technically, you know, our dog, but she's really my dog. And Sassy, having been uh, very obedient to guard the orchard through the fruiting season, has now been liberated from what she considers uh, jail and has been restored to her queenly position on the front porch. And so she is now sitting just outside the door of uh, my little radio studio, awaiting my uh, reemergence from this task in order that she could be petted, which is just kind of her goal in life at this point. So, uh, so there you go. I will have to take pictures of Sassy and post them to my Twitter feed. You can follow me at Carmen LaBerge for, uh, for that most edifying celebration of National Dog Day, which Paul Perot tells me is way past the dog days of summer, which that he informs is right. me ended on the 11th. The dog, yeah, August 11th. So I don't know why today is National and International Dog Day, but um, I'm celebrating it. And uh, and let's see one other bit of news that seems relevant only to the headlines that were mentioned at the top of the hour. Gas prices have certainly fallen at my exit on the interstate where you should come to Kings and Springs, Tennessee, where you could today buy gas for $2.21. There you go. <laughs> I live in a great place. Okay, uh, I also have a 16-year-old in the house. As of today, Eliana turned 16 yesterday. And so, um, you know, both pray for us and celebrate with us. It is glorious and joyful to have another driver in the house. It's also glorious and joyful 
to have an emerging adult, right, with whom we are walking by faith every day as God creates in her just all the beauty and goodness of who he is. We got all kinds of headlines coming up next. Brandon Showalter is in the house from the Christian Post. He is joining us via Skype. He and I will be right back. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Joining me again this morning is Brandon Showalter. You know him from the Christian Post. Welcome back, my friend. Good morning, Carmen. So great to be with you always. Do you have a dog? Um, no, but my sister and her her husband, my brother-in-law, have a really great dog named Gus, and he's just the life of the party, and I always enjoy hugging him when I get to go home and see them. All right, so we're going to celebrate Gus today. I'm celebrating Sassy yeah. at my house. Yeah. Celebrating all the dogs of the past when I was all growing up. Dogs. Right? All the dogs. Ludwig von Schmittenhofer, the, the fourth Fowler. At some point, we have to talk about my favorite dog yes. I ever had. Okay. So, Brandon, we're talking about drag queens. I don't know. You and, <laughs> you and I have a hard time getting off of these uh, very disturbing cultural headlines. But um, well. Drag Queen Story Hour has now been, you know, I think rightly publicly described as the greatest grooming program ever. Tell us about that. Well, you know, yeah, there's disturbing um, headlines, but Christian Post is one of the few outlets that will actually report on some of this stuff. So, uh, yes, I interviewed John Uhler, who was a, he's a clinical counselor who's worked with thousands of you know sex offenders, some of the worst predators in, in our prison system. And um, he tells me that this you know phenomenon of drag queen story hour that are happening – um, at American libraries, it are, which is a very top-down coordinated event. It started in 2015 through this little nonprofit called Drag Queen Story Hour in San Francisco. These are um, yet another uh, one of these events, this time in Austin. There was a man with a prostitution conviction exposed. Um, library didn't screen him. No background, no background check performed. And um, he's reading to very, very young children. And so I think this is just outrageous. And so I, um, I ended up calling him and he said, yes, this is, this is a program that predators are using to not only gain access to children, but to test the resolve of communities to see if they will put up a fight against this. And if they don't, they will, you know, predators will be flocking to that community. I think his words are well warranted because um, uh, this is being billed as something that's entertaining and even good for children to learn about acceptance and tolerance. But really, that's just a bunch of gaslighting and predators are using this to um, get near children and they have no business being near these young kids. So, uh, Brandon, I uh, I think that there are uh a rising number of people across the country who are both outraged about you know the proliferation of drag queen story hour not only in in public schools but in other public spaces uh in their communities um i also know that there's just a lot of people who are like all right well you don't have to go you can just avoid it you can protect your children from that but when we when we start platforming um, these kinds of activities in our public spaces. And when we start saying, basically, you know, giving them a stamp of approval by having them at the public library through our public tax, through our tax dollars, 
Um, we are, you know, we are going along with something in the culture that really Christians must at some point stand up and say, this is not right. This is there's a there's an unrighteousness to this that goes beyond just, you know, everybody sort of having a live and let live. This is this is intrusive. It is destructive. It uh, it tells it, it tells lies to little girls. Like, I think that the um, uh, the way that the drag queen um, persona uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it is so demeaning to women. And yes. so you know, yes. as a woman, I want to stand up and say, okay, just as offended, and now I will get myself in all kinds of trouble, and I know that, just as offended as black people are by blackface, mm-hmm. I am equally offended by the drag queen culture. I am equally oh, offended yes. by a person um, acting as if they could portray all of the you know most sexualized eccentricities of femaleness and parade that right. around and be celebrated for it. I'm, I am, I am, it is deeply offensive to me as a woman. Well, and I read an excellent article, uh, sort of along those same lines. It was out in, um, uh, Spokane, Spokane, Washington. Washington. Yeah, right. We read where, the same the, thing. Uh, well, you know, and it was, it was, um, she pointed out that drag, which as you mentioned, you know, it, it, it thrives upon, you know, really sexualized hyper, you know, stereotypes and caricatures of women, uh, roots and minstrel shows, the, the very things that were used to demean and diminish black people, the blackface and drag were tools used to embarrass and shame and control Americans and women. So if people give you a hard time, they should just pack it in, I think, because it, it, it is, I think it is offensive. But I would just point out something, too, and maybe this seems like a distinction without a difference to some. From what I understand, a lot of the sort of the old-style drag, while I still think it's offensive, um, old-style drag was like, you know, they had names like Hedda Lettuce and Electra Lux, these kind of silly, goofy um, names and, you know, just it's kind of comedy. I mean, not my thing, okay? Some of these ones now are – I'm not going to even repeat their names right, on the air. Right. It, there's, a, there's a darkness to them that's just – it's highly, highly sexualized and very inappropriate. Um, it's, it's definitely a deeper degree of offensiveness if you ask me. Um, and it's – yeah, I mean and, and at what point in people this, – this whole attitude of being you know live and let live, you don't like it, don't go. At what point do we care about people in the community that particularly if, if there's a – drag queen with a sex offender past or child molestation or prostitution conviction in the past, we should care that no one in the community um, is exposed is to around that. that is exposed that's to that. Right. I mean, that's legitimately dangerous. So that's right. Um, I, I would say to Christians and anybody else who's just halfway decent, don't tolerate this. This is not okay. All right. So Brandon Showalter and I are going to return in just a moment. We're going to talk about presidential candidates and their God talk. We're also going to bring you up to date on um, some international, very disturbing international headlines uh, in Mexico. We'll be right back. Be strong in the Lord and never give up hope. You're going to do great things. I already know. God's Returning to my conversation with Brandon Showalter, you can find everything we're talking about today and more at ChristianPost.com. Actually, there's several uh, headlines we are not going to get to at the Christian Post this morning that I highly commend to you in denominational news. They've got a piece posted about Southern Baptists, the Disciples of Christ, and the United Methodist. Uh, those are all fascinating and interesting stories I would uh, certainly commend to you this morning. Um, Brandon and I are going to turn right now to – Brandon, let's do this international headline piece first. I know that you've got – you guys have got something posted 
about um, Christians in India who've been attacked, Christians in Burkina Faso who've been attacked. But let's focus in here on this Mexican pastor. Tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about this story. Yes, well, some conflicting reports have emerged, and we've since um, had a correction appended to the article. But it was a pastor in southwest Mexico who was shot and killed after a church service. Um, this was this would have been uh, last Sunday, and this is a pastor, Alfredo Victor, who helps Cuban immigrants where he is in Oaxaca. Shot at point blank range, and he died as he was being transported to a local hospital. Such sad. I mean, it's the Obviously, we believe it's the work of the drug cartels, um, but you know Mexico faces this kind of violence uh, a lot, and it doesn't always get attention. Usually, when you think of you know Christian persecution around the world, you think of the Middle East or you know China or North Korea, some of these more notorious places where Christians are uh, face a lot of things. But you know Mexicans face their own share of issues, particularly again with drug cartels. Um, and according to Christian Solidarity Worldwide, you know, 10 religious leaders were killed in Mexico in 2018. Um, and so it's, it's so sad. I, when I saw this story, I just commented that, you know, life is so precious and so fragile and just we take – got to live every day, make it count. <laughs> So in the in this particular piece, you also, you know, you highlight for us the story of Pastor Aaron Mendez Ruiz, um, who ran a shelter for Cuban immigrants in Nuevo Laredo, who was abducted August the 3rd. You know, I mean, I think that there are probably lots of folks in the United States of America that do not know um, that this is going on just across our southern border, that the um, that drug gangs, drug cartels are pretty systematically targeting um, Christians who are, mm-hmm. you know, sort of, you know, seeking to help, seeking to be the helpers right. in their communities. Right. They, um, and I, I've watched, I've, I've seen documentaries to this effect where drug, you know, drug traffickers and you know, gangs will, you know, try to incorporate sort of spiritual themes into their, you know, operating mm-hmm. DNA, if you will, to ingratiate themselves into society and gain favor with people and. Uh, pastors who resist that become targets, and you're right; they they go for the people who are, who are the helpers. Um, it's it's so incredibly sad, and these pastors are tremendously brave for standing up and saying no to it. But as you know, as this as this article shows, sometimes they pay with it for their lot with their lives. It's it's disgraceful. It's so sad. So sad. Um, all right, let's come back across the border here to the United States and the uh, political process here. Uh, we are sorting out who will be the candidates for president in 2020. Um, and the Democratic presidential candidates, you have a piece up at uh, at ChristianPost.com entitled Democratic Presidential Candidates Talk God, Faith, and Trump as Primaries Near. I have been fascinated. I've been fascinated by the number of uh, Democratic candidates who have taken to the pulpit like, right. If if there were Republican candidates in in this many pulpits uh, across the country on Sunday mornings, people would be stomping their feet, raging mad that, you know, the whole the, the church was bowing down to the political establishment. But somehow, because they're Democrats taking to the pulpit, mm, nobody's really saying anything about that. I, I'm notice I'm not getting any panicked press releases from you know, <laughs> separation of church and state. You know, Americans for separation of church and state. Right. Somehow, those, those emails with breathless headlines about the creeping theocracy in America is just not. I'm not getting any of those. Um, you know, because anyway, it's on the other side of the aisle. And you know, and yeah. Before I say any more, it's I, I have no idea 
what sort of the faith is on what's going on in the hearts of most uh, Democrats or Republicans. If I'm absolutely, honest with you. I have I really don't absolutely. know just where any of these people are spiritually. Um, even though I you know, sort of have a front row seat to what what's going on here in Washington D.C. But um, yeah, it's it's been interesting to watch the many Democratic candidates are speaking um, with sort of a God flavor <laughs> before congregations and religious groups. This one event, the Black Church PAC, the PAC, um, it's just sort of a face a face faith initiative faith leaders by faith leaders who are trying to you know support progressive and left-wing candidates committed to a few specific issues like ending mass incarceration um gun violence um i certainly have i would like to see um prison reform and some of that's happened this year as it happens but yeah it's been interesting to watch the democrats talk about god uh particular i mean a lot of platitudes they're not going deep into theology but um it's I find it very interesting. Well, and I find it fascinating that obviously there is there's a spiritual hunger, there's a spiritual appetite. There's yes. no question about that. Um, but it was not that long ago that uh, that in the Democratic platform itself for their party, I mean, God was really removed oh, and yes. moved to the sidelines. And and God has, you know, God is certainly a front and center again. I think the question that you that you illuminate and that I think is important for us to remember is that just because somebody uses the term God or makes uh, references to particular scriptures does not mean um, that we necessarily agree um, on uh, on interpretation, on theological points. And so I think the conversation has to be taken deeper. I have to ask the question, what does this person mean when they make mm-hmm. reference to God? Are they referring right. to the God of the Bible? Is there evidence here that this is a person, you know, who is going to lead us under the sovereignty of God, under the authority? I mean, I, I really do think those are legitimate questions Important to ask questions, and, for yeah, sure. and find answers to. All right. Hey, Absolutely. Brandon, we uh, we love and appreciate all that you uh, all that you bring to us. We probably have time to talk about one more thing. So um, John Cooper from Skillet, he was here on the show just last week uh, and he offered this, you know, powerful witness for the gospel. He appeared, appealed for the restoration of the Word of God uh, to the rightful place in the life of the believer. It was really it was a strong testimony. It was very powerful. You have a piece posted about Marty Sampson's response, not to John Cooper's appearance here on my show, although, you know, that would have been interesting, too. Um, but in, in response to uh, John Cooper's original Facebook post, tell us about that. Yes, and this is really – it's been interesting to follow this sort of back-and-forth discussion um, where Marty, who – um, I mean, I thought John Cooper's words were really great, but um, Marty Marty basically responded saying, "Look, I'm you know I'm just trying to be honest with his own journey and his own process, not trying to draw attention to himself." I think he disagreed with John Cooper's conclusion that he was still trying to influence people amid his um, sort of his faith being on more shaky ground, um, and. So it's he, – he basically said that, you know, to think that he's trying to influence other people without even asking if that was his intention was sort of offended, was was offensive. And, yeah, um, but pretty much if you're a person with millions of followers and you take to social media and you post well, something, you right. are by definition oh, yeah. an influencer. That is the right. definition of influencer of in the culture today. Of course. And yeah. I think people are so wired and connected to their phones that maybe they've sort of forgotten – the power that they do have in their fingers when they just think they're being quote unquote real when really, you know, even very, every idle word that they say does shape, um, can shape even, you know, and obviously we're, we're media that are reporting on it can shape a conversation that's going on in the culture. And, uh, 
it's just I think it underscores the importance of when you do gain influence um, to be very watchful. I mean, I, I've mm-hmm. certainly had to watch that as, as a reporter whose people are paying closer attention to the things I say on social media and elsewhere. Um, but it's it's an important conversation. I do understand, um, I, you know, I, people social media is the way many people interact, including people who are more influential and are influencers, as you say. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's important to, you know, just be very, be very careful. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and just steward that with as much wisdom as we possibly can. Um, because, uh, the warnings in the new Testament, I think about making shipwreck of one's faith are there for a reason, you know, the Mm. warnings against false, not, we're not that we have to be paranoid about it, but they're there for a reason. And so I, I just think that bring that to bear on our use of social media would, that's something for all for us all to consider. All right, friends, he's a good follow on Twitter. If you're on social media, Brandon M show, you can also find him at christianpost.com. Hey, thank you, my friend. Thank you, Carmen. So great to be with you. Likewise. All right, we got to take a quick break. Make your life count. We'll be right back. All right, so, um, yeah, I make the mistake of during the break uh, reading my Twitter feed and my emails. So let me just go ahead and apologize for that. Hey, join me. uh, Stay with me. Not join me. You're already here. We're already together. We're already wandering around in the world this morning. Adam Carrington is up next from Hillsdale College. He and I are going to talk about uh, the influence of the Koch brothers. You may have heard that David Koch died at the end of last week. Um, We're also, while we're on that subject, I'm going to ask him about, you know, sort of what, what is a liber- libertarian and how does that actually compare to people who describe themselves as Republicans? And then we're going to talk about the Republican primary field. Yes, in addition to there being a Democratic primary field, there is now a Republican primary field. Field That means multiple people now running against the president for the nomination. Um, we're going to talk about other things as well, but there you go. That's my lead in. Stay with me for my conversation with Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. That's up next. When I was growing up, I was told that each of us is here for a purpose, including me. I believe God has given each of us a purpose in this life. Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. Your life is filled with choices. How to spend your time, how to use your money, and what to do with your unique talents and abilities. As the saying goes, so many choices, so little time. And here's one way your purpose comes into play. When you know your purpose, it becomes easier to make choices. You can confidently make decisions that help you live your life calling. This is true for your finances, too. Your financial decisions will either help you live out your purpose or they will distract you from your purpose. This is true for financial decisions you make for today and tomorrow. So when it comes to being wise with money, let your purpose, God's purpose for your life, guide you every step of the way. Adam Carrington joins us again this morning. He is a professor of politics at Hillsdale College. Uh, He teaches on everything from the U.S. Constitution and constitutional law to politics and literature to the American presidency. Uh, We just enjoy having an ongoing conversation with Adam uh, about all all kinds of things in the political landscape of America. Welcome back. 
Always great to be here. Thanks for keep having me, uh, continually having me back on. (laughs) Absolutely. It's a joy. Um, You're one of my favorite conversation partners. I feel like I can pretty much um, throw anything out there that's been in a a headline related to politics and you will bite. And so I, I love that. Um, let's talk about the Koch brothers. So David Koch died uh, towards the end of last week. Let's talk about their influence. And then I would just love for you at some point in this conversation to tell us what a libertarian is and how it differs from uh, traditional republicanism. Right. The, the the Koch brothers became sort of a, 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 a swear word if you're on the political left, but uh, also a great, great influence within the political right. And uh, um, actually, David Cook ran for president in 1980 as a libertarian, didn't get very far, and realized that he and his brother would probably be better served using their money to build institutions. And so what uh, I think their greatest legacy is that the kind of republicanism or uh, the way that the political right was during the early part of the Tea Party era – uh, free, you know, big emphasis on free markets and deregulation, uh, big emphasis on free trade, uh, emphasis on much smaller government and balanced budgets. That was all something that the Kochs poured a lot of money into candidates, but also into universities, into think tanks. They had a whole massive network of of uh, uh, ways to try to influence and educate that uh, it was trying to fulfill their vision of what would make America a better country. And uh, you're right, it was specifically a more libertarian vision. And I think uh, if, if you're going to separate um, traditional conservatism from libertarianism, and especially if you're going to separate uh, conservatism as it's evolving now from libertarianism, I think that uh, one is that uh, libertarians want a much, much smaller government. Uh, they really want it to uh, do the bare bones, protecting you from harm from others. Uh, I think they are much more uh, uh, willing to uh, let people do what they want um, as far as in the social sphere. Typically, libertarians tend to be, if not pro-choice, uh, uh, more lenient on abortion laws. Uh, they tend to be in favor of drug legalization. A lot of the marijuana legalizations that are going on right now are very much driven by libertarian policy. Uh, and they tend to be a little uh, uh, they're certainly patriotic, but a little less committed to having government intervention for what's perceived as the best interests of the country of the country versus possibly others. I think those are some of the big differences and and also uh, issues like marriage and sexuality. Uh, Typically, libertarians are much more uh, whoever would like to get married or even define marriage as they would as as an institution they want to be a part of. They want to be a part of. That's why liberty sort of dominates uh, both spheres. Economically, they don't want the government involved. And as far as social sphere, they don't want government involved or regulating, which uh, conservatism tends to, at least in the social sphere, want more interaction and more intervention by the government to prop up concepts like morality and, and, and the good. So um, when we look at the political landscape today, it's impossible as a person who um, who understands the conservative, uh, the conservative view, and and likes a lot of of a of a conservative platform, just related to let's say smaller government, a robust military, 
um, fiscal responsibility. I don't know what other legs you might put on a, a sort of traditional conservatism platform. Would there am I missing one or several? I, I think uh, often the old, what was called the fusion, I sort of the modern conservative movement, that's a, a great way to talk about the legs. The modern conservative movement was sort of built out by people like Bill Buckley in the 50s, mm. saying mm-hmm. we're going to combine anti-communists, which is uh, sort of the strong military leg you're talking about, with libertarians who want lots of economic freedom, with social conservatives that want pro-life, pro-family messaging. And we're going to try to get them, even though they don't don't all agree perfectly, get them to say, we have enough in common to be all together on this. And the libertarian wing uh, was, uh, it won most uh, decisively, I think, on both social and economic issues. And I think that um, the question about conservatism now is there's a lot of people questioning whether those three legs come together and does libertarianism still have a place in that system or not. So it's fair to say, um, I mean, you're a genuine student of political history. It's fair to say that um, that conservatism could have a new definition in our day or going forward if some group of people across the country chose to begin defining it differently. Like what you're saying is, you know, Bill Buckley essentially helped craft a definition of conservatism that persisted for a generation or more. Um, but that others today are seeking to redefine what that means. Absolutely. And and I don't think it's all um, uh, just up in the air completely. The, the question that everyone, I think, is debating is what are you trying – conservatism has conserve in it. What are you trying to conserve? Mm. And um, I think that uh, some of the debate is some people want to conserve the American founding as it was in 1787. Uh, some are wanting to say, well, I don't know if we can go all the way to that, but uh, we want to conserve you know, the 1950s where you had strong families, strong employment, uh, strong national cohesion. And I think that's the d- debate is, is when conservatives want to conserve, what, are they want, what do they want to or what are they willing to go back to? And I think some of the debates between self-defined conservatisms is what are you returning to in, 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 in trying to conserve what you say you're conserving? Okay, I love that. You've given me a question that I'm now going to start asking people because I do think it takes a little bit of a heat out of the conversation for me to then ask somebody, okay, if you describe yourself as conservative, what are you trying to conserve? Because not everybody's trying to conserve the same thing. So I think that's really, really helpful. Um, all right, Adam, when we uh, when we return, I mean, there's so much that I want to get to. Um, let's um, let's jump from this conversation to one that a lot of my listeners have been asking about, and that is the New York Times 1619 Project. Um, first of all, I want you to tell people what the New York Times 1619 Project is from your viewpoint, um, and then you know, and then let's connect how Christians do see the issues or maybe should see the issues. So that's up next here with Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Returning to my conversation with Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College, you can you can follow him on Twitter, but I don't think Twitter's his favorite place to be, but he's Carrington, A.M., uh, you can also check him out at Hillsdale College website. Okay, uh, Professor, help us understand what's happening in the New York Times 1619 Project. 
Yes, this is a major undertaking by the Times, and uh, August 6th of, of this year, which we're still in, is the 400th anniversary of the first slave ship landing in what is now the United States, so August of 1619. And the point of, of this project, the series of articles and essays and other things, is really to reconceive most of America, its past and its present, in light of slavery, to say that basically slavery and the underlying racism that 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 uh, supported and perpetuated it to, uh, really infiltrates our economics, our faith, our political principles, and that we need to re-understand ourselves in that light. And, and by the way, this has become very popular in the Democratic primary to make these claims. So that's the, that's the essence of, of, of what it's trying to do. So you'll find articles saying, well, capitalism is based in slavery. Uh, religion uh, of the United States is based in slavery. Our political principles and documents uh, all go back to slavery. And that's what it's 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 in some ways uh, meant to be a historical piece, but it's also meant to be a piece that makes a political point about who we are and therefore saying what we need to do about who we are. So, uh, it, you know, going back to the discussion of conservatism, saying that people who want to conserve the American founding, that's what you're trying to conserve. So it's very much a, a shot across the bow politically, in addition to being an econo a, a, a social and economic uh, historical uh, piece. So I feel like that um, that provides us an opportunity to talk about education in our culture. Because there's no question that, you know, mainstream media um, and, and the media writ large is now, feels now like the primary, like, educational institution or certainly re-education institution um, in the country. And you compete with that. Like, in higher ed, and in, I feel like you're now competing in some, in some ways, on some days, um, with, with a culture that is... Um, being educated by a very small group of people who um, who pull the levers and print the pages of things like the New York Times. Yes, actually, our, our, our president and I should say the president of our college was lamenting um, the fact that in some ways we have to compete with a social media atmosphere and that social media and and the information from the media is meant to educate and meant to give a place for conversation. So places like the New York Times are meant to educate uh, and, and, and things like uh, Twitter and Facebook are meant to be a way that we can talk to each other and that really neither is happening the way it should. And how especially, I'm sort of transferring this more to the social media question, how in class it's not merely um, – I'm not merely competing to get people to listen to the original documents and what they say. And by the way, I think uh, I don't believe that we were founded in slavery. I believe that we spent uh, our history dedicated to undoing the effects of it. But um, I, I think that the other thing is that we 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 don't know how to talk to each other. Uh, something I often in teaching in my classes is how do you have a real robust conversation with someone who you don't understand, and that's often why I give them hard text to read. I give them something they won't immediately understand and say, you before you critique this, you need to understand it. But then also talking to someone else in the room 
and learning to treat them as a human being as you converse and coming in thinking that you're not just trying to win an argument, you're trying to grow your own understanding. And those are all things that more and more, I think the students are all capable of it, but I think their education they get from the greater society is making it so they're less and less equipped when they get here to do it. And it's something that's more of our education showing them how to learn in addition to what to learn. So let's, I want to talk about education. I want to talk about the point of education. Um, and I'll just pitch this out there, something that a conversation that I, uh, I was a voyeur of, I didn't actually actively participate. I just watched it happen watched it unfold on Twitter. And it was this conversation about um, college and one person was saying, hey, back in the days when we were primarily agrarian society, we didn't, you know, we didn't even have K through 12. You know, we developed this K through 12 model sort of in the industrial era and, you know, made it compulsory and um, and then tax funded. Uh, and now, you know, maybe as we are looking younger, uh, at, you know, funding things that are what we would consider preschool or early childhood edu- education and uh, as we as a culture in many places are looking at funding something that would be at the college level post the 12th grade, you know, maybe that's because we have reached a very different stage in our economy where we actually need um, children to be supervised uh, earlier than first grade or kindergarten. And we need them educated beyond the 12th grade because of the kinds of things we now expect them to do in an information, uh, you know, in an information age, in a digital economy. So all of that gets to kind of the the political conversation that we are going to be having about um, funding college education. But it does ask a deeper question or it provokes the possibility of having a conversation about what is education in a country like America? Why do we do it the way that we do it now? And what is it for? Right. And I think there's a great debate on that. And and, and at least uh, what I think and what my institution thinks is that. Um, it's not just about getting a job. A lot of what we talk about is you need to go to school to get a job. And I think that that actually uh, dehumanizes us a bit when that's the only focus, that you are more than a job. You are a sibling, a child, a spouse, a parent, a member of a church, a member of a community. And we're and I think education, wherever at whatever level it is, needs to be about uh, cultivating more than just training, uh, uh, cultivating human beings and citizens. And that's why, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing to study foreign languages, even dead ones, or to read Homer, Virgil and Shakespeare to study what's beautiful, what's true, what's good. And I think that, uh, yes, there are certain necessities uh, driven by literacy, driven by the need for self-government that says we need to educate people more than they were in the past to be good citizens and to be good human beings. But I would say on top of that, that means that we're not just training them to get a job. We're training them to know how to govern themselves, to be as virtuous as human beings, sinful as they are, can be, to learn how to live in community, to know what's just and good. And that if we leave that education out of the classroom, and leave it just to social media and society. We're not helping parents the way we need to. We're not helping students the way we need to. That's, I think, something that uh, needs to be fought for here if we want to keep the kind of just and decent society that we're striving for in this country. And the Christians wanting to live in their city on earth uh, as good citizens should want to strive for as well for their country. 
Okay, in terms of reading hard things, uh, maybe our reading assignment for everyone uh, this semester should be The Iliad or The Odyssey by Homer. I have a uh, 11th grader, <clears throat> and she's reading The Odyssey this semester. So maybe everybody could read it with me so you can help me understand uh, what good, beautiful, and true things I'm supposed to be drawing out of that, distilling from that to help her. <laughs> that would be great. I, and I love Shakespeare, and he was so hard when I first got to him. Right? It's so worth it. So All right. worth well, it. Well, there you so, go. Yeah. Maybe we uh, we ought to just talk about that one week. Um, Adam Carrington, thank you so much. We love talking with you. Uh, Adam is at Hillsdale College. You can check it out at hillsdale.edu. We'll be right back. All right. I, I have surely got at least one listener who's on Twitter. And, and so if so, I need you to go follow Adam Carrington. He's at Carrington. A.M. Why? Because right now he has 666 followers on Twitter, and that just weirds me out. Huh. I'm not really a numerology person, but it weirds me out. So somebody needs to go follow Adam Carrington on Twitter at Carrington A.M. There you go. That's my little uh, pitch uh, for that this morning. Okay, we have been all over the landscape this morning. It is International Dog Day or National Dog Day, so I'm just going to celebrate your dog. Uh, Dogs in the past, dogs in the present, dogs in the future. It's all fun. Um, next, uh, the next hour, I am going to talk about some headlines that we have not gotten to in the first hour. And then we're going to talk with Dr. David Aikman, who's the editor of Godspeed magazine. We're going to focus in on the G7 meeting in France. We're also going to uh, focus on other things going on, uh, around the world. So you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'd love it if you visit us online at myfaithradio.com. You can grab, grab this podcast and share it with someone else. And we will be right back after a short break. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.